This is part one of what has become a two-part episode on Queen Victoria's education. I had hoped to do it all in one go, but it turned into an absolute monster, so I've had to split it halfway for you. Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. This is the latest in the series of shows on Queen Victoria's childhood and her life before she became Queen. Today, we are going to cover her early education. If you haven't listened to episode 17 18 and 19, I suggest you do that before listening to this one, so you know about her family, birth and the struggles for the royal succession. At the end of the show, we will have some community updates, reviews and some news about some DVDs on Victoria that I've been asked to review. Today, let's have a think about what is the purpose education? Is it to build a person's knowledge or to shape their character? Is it a blend of both? Or is one more important than the other? Or is it more concerned with producing a well-rounded person? Or maybe it is just about learning the facts. You don't have to have an understanding abstract principles to learn times tables or to construe. If you were a Roman educator, brutal rote learning was all that was needed. These are old questions in a way, but they are important. I wasn't expecting to think about them today. Unfortunately for you though, this is the bit of the show where I do a bit of philosophical musing. That's okay, isn't it? We spend a little time on a big picture question, we need to think about it. Because today, I'm going to be looking at Queen Victoria's education. We need to ask about the purpose of education though. And that's because we all have some, I don't want to say biases around education. Let's call them baked in assumptions. I'm going to make some unfounded deductions now. If you are listening to this show, You are probably educated, computer literate, and have an intellectually curious mind. Since the Age of Victoria podcast is a long-running, detail-oriented show, you've also got patience and willingness to listen to a topic in depth. So, you are the product of a mid-to-late 20th century or early 21st century education system. Maybe you've even gone into postgraduate education or a demanding professional career of some kind. That means you've probably got an ingrained view that education is universal, a human right even, and that pretty much everyone you meet should be able to read and to write. You will probably expect people 
to make rational choices after really careful examination of the evidence. Where evidence is missing, you expect people to notice it and search out more. You also expect to encounter new situations at work and respond to them, maybe with further training if needed. And you will expect people to test the evidence for their beliefs and adjust them if the evidence doesn't support them. It's not actually how our minds work, but that's the theory. All that is fine. I love my audience and I've got a high opinion of all of you. But the problem is that this is the result of a universal education model that aims at providing each citizen with access to a huge array of knowledge, then slowly giving them the tools to analyse it. The end point of modern education is to produce people who can read and write well enough to either apply knowledge or identify gaps in knowledge and remedy them. It is hugely generalist in many ways. Most people leave school with a broad knowledge of a little. They then get educated in more depth at university or in work. It isn't really designed to equip people for moral reasoning or the kind of critical thinking about analysing abstract concepts and questions like what is the level of civic virtue needed to sit on a jury and why? Or what if a leader is faced with the choice starting a small war of aggression to prevent a large war later that would kill millions and destabilise a whole region? Or why is truth considered an abstract concept in the modern world but not in the pre-modern world? Can we deal in facts in a post-truth world? Good schools or teachers will touch on things like this and many do so extremely well. Victoria had to deal with these kind of questions. If citizens could vote, surely they could sit on juries. If she encouraged a reform government that enlarged the franchise, was she being irresponsible by diluting the quality of the pool of jurors? Did that undermine the justice system? If she discouraged her government from invading a territory, was she letting them expose British-held territory to future raids or invasion that would be far more damaging and lead to even greater loss of life? If God wasn't directly involved in the world as classical Christianity teaches, then how could any fact be assured without biblical support? Not a trivial question for the intensely religious Victorians. Our education system works for us because society set up for that kind of education to benefit us, and more importantly, to benefit society as a whole. We have a life of luxury that the Victorians could only dream of in societies that are incredibly rich in comparison to theirs. We can indulge in specialist education Most of our ancestors, including the well-educated ones, might have regarded as pretty esoteric or even self-indulgent. 
What's that? You yell at your iPhone or iPod or other music player? Education is a wonderful benefit in itself and one of the crowning glories of civilization, one that enriches the mind. If a person wishes to study 17th century drum manufacturing so that they can produce wonderful soundscapes in a theatre, aren't we all culturally richer for their hard work? Well, yes, society may well be. I'd never discourage anyone from pursuing knowledge. And that's why I do this show. Just remember that we are privileged to live at a time where society values individual choice and make sure that, by and large, its citizens have enough food to eat whilst we make our choices. Maybe society in 200 years will say that we were crazy spending time and resources letting people choose their educational pathways when they should have been forced to learn about climate change and how to build water purification devices or solar generators to cope with a world of skyrocketing temperatures and the consequences of mass extinctions. What I'm trying to drive home to you is that when using the word education, remember that you are thinking of it in its modern sense. You will be assuming goals and standards and applying them to the past, probably thinking that the past doesn't come up to scratch. Education is dependent on culture and circumstances. The purpose of education in some other cultures has been focused on a very different goal, the education of character, learning to read or write or think critically or manage information were not the end goal. After all, is it better to have an intelligent, rational, driven, highly educated, amoral person, or an averagely intelligent, mostly rational, but highly moral person who thinks much more about the ethics of their action than the optimal outcomes? Ideally, Maybe you want a mix of intelligence, knowledge and moral reasoning. This is a really old and fascinating debate. It runs through the history of education and in some ways the history of civilization. You can look back as far as Socrates to see the emphasis on education to develop knowledge and skills advocated by the sophists of ancient Athens or to develop moral character above all else as championed by Socrates, he might well have challenged our modern education system if we boasted that we produced brilliant scientists, lawyers and doctors. He might challenge back by saying the highest training for a doctor is the formation of good character. The whole nature of modern technocratic education deals well with what we could call the philosophy of education, but at the same time, in other ways, is sometimes very uncomfortable thinking about it. The skills produced by education are highly dependent on the society that produces them. It can be a mistake to assume that the modern education system is automatically better than the ones in the past, just because we like the type of person it produces. There might be really good evidence 
that we do have a better education system than in the past, but you need to do the background investigation to reach that conclusion, not just jump to it. In many ways, society is the ultimate determinant of the value of education. If you look at the education of, say, a French knight in the 1400s and a British merchant in the 1850s, you could probably say that the British merchant is better educated. Much of what he knows is more factually accurate according to science. But is he actually better educated? The knight probably didn't have such a high level of skill at reading and writing. He wouldn't have had anything like the merchant's knowledge of the geography of the world or technology. But if we are brutally honest, how useful would that education system have been in the medieval world? The knight knew how to care for horses, how to read and write sufficiently to navigate the legal systems of the medieval world. He knew how to fight and joust. He knew how to go on a military campaign. He knew how to dance, probably. Or how, perhaps, to recite a courtly romance. He might have known how to administer a complex estate and negotiate property disputes with the church. That would be far more use to him than knowing the average rainfall in the Amazon basin or how to calculate the volume of a cube. It took a whole series of social and technical advances in the Renaissance for things like double-entry bookkeeping or mechanical engineering to become more valuable. And I'm doing this as a little ego check for us as well. When I talk about Victorian education in the rest of the episode and the things Victoria learnt, remember a highly educated graduate student today would be almost useless in the Victorian world it is easy to assume, because we know more than the Victorians about the things that are important to our society, we would be more intelligent and better educated than them. Well, I'll be blunt. If you took PhD holder today and took them back to the Victorian England, odds are that on day one, they couldn't even dress themselves. The whole mass of Victorian clothing, with its stays, its crinolines and braces and buttons and ribbons, to say nothing of complex items like corsets and men's shirts that didn't have collars or sleeves attached, would baffle a modern person without a demonstration. Nor would the modern person know how to perform many basic tasks, like making tea and toast. They would probably struggle to know how to get water and how to boil it. They would certainly not know how to sew with anything like the skill of a Victorian child. They wouldn't know their imperial weights and measures and currencies in their head so that they could bargain with dishonest market stallholders. They wouldn't know how to operate the machines in factories or how to saddle a horse to pull a canal barge. They wouldn't know how to navigate London in the smog or how to cook a basic meal. They wouldn't know how to tell people's social class and identify it on sight. They wanted to tell a person how intelligent and smart they were. Would they even know to find their right way to the right place? Say a lawyer's office 
or university, those weren't littered with bright plastic signs and plate glass windows like today. How would knowing computer programming help a Victorian? How would those devastating PowerPoint skills really be any use or worth being paid a penny a day? What about those amazing physics discoveries they know all about? Do they really know why E equals MC squared? Even if they do, could they translate it into a practical life skill? Could they bluff their way into medical school with a hazy knowledge of hand washing and a magical thing called antibiotics that they actually have no way of making? For the Victorians, skills were highly prized because they kept you alive in a complex world. Much Victorian education assumed you would be taught on the job. So what you really needed was to be educated in becoming a good person or to have the facts hammered into you, as well as basic reading and writing. Intelligent people have existed throughout history. Victorians had an enormous number of incredibly intelligent people. Darwin alone would stand out in most ages of history. But look at some of his counterparts. People like Owen, Charles Lyell, Charles Babbage, Alfred Russell Wallace, the Countess Lovelace. And you can see that incredibly detailed technical education could be available to the early Victorians. Their understanding of their areas of science is probably far beyond a modern person's. Don't kid yourself that because you watched Blue Planet, your grasp of evolution, fossils, geology, and continental formation, or coral reefs, is up to Darwin's. You have just been shown a series of views that he didn't have access to, presented by experts, and with the benefit of people doing an extra hundred years of work. He did the work he did in the society he lived in up to the limits of the time. He didn't need to know the history of the labour movement in the United States to produce a theory of coral reef formation that was pretty much spot on and mostly confirmed in the C20th century. The technology had to catch up with him to confirm the theory. An example of a modern teaching philosophy might look radically different from those you might encounter in the Victorian era or those that Victoria herself learned under. For instance, a modern teacher might say, quote, I believe the classroom is a living community and that everyone, from the principal to the students to the parents, must contribute in order to maintain a positive atmosphere. Everyone in the classroom contributes as a student, teacher and thinker. I learn from students as much as they learn from me. All students are individual. Everyone learns in their own unique way. End quote. You can probably guess where I'm going with this. If you put those points to a lot of early Victorian teachers, they might have looked at you like you were, to quote a Victorian phrase, off your chump, mate. You can guess what that means. Teachers in early Victorian England did not, under any circumstances, expect to learn from their pupils. No one educating Victoria 
expected her to teach them a sense of wonder through the curious eyes of a child, causing them to reflect on their own experiences. Universal education was usually seen as wholly undesirable. Learning was strictly related to trades or basic facts in the early Victorian period. In some schools, the philosophy was for the teacher to teach the smartest pupil, who then taught the next few smartest, who then taught the next, and so on, the so-called Lancaster system. At the very bottom of the educational pile were the harsh charity schools that Dickens castigated. There's a great quote from a man called James Beak, who went to the Portsmouth Beneficial Society School, known as the Old Benny. Quote, My first master was a Mr Gladstare, a tall man, somewhat advanced in life, slightly round-shouldered, and wearing a rusty suit of black, with a swallow-tail coat. Mr Gladstare was said to be a very clever man, and in proof of that, he was able to write the Lord's Prayer on a piece of paper the size of a sixpence. Whatever else he was clever in, I have no recollection. The subjects he taught were very limited. The good old church catechism was easily taught. A good handwriting was the special thing. Mr. G appeared to be an easy-going man who was prepared to let the world slide. He was addicted to a very bad habit, the warm summer afternoons. A boy was sometimes dispatched to the public house opposite for a pint of ale or stout, which Mr. G placed on a desk near the Southampton Row side, and sipping now and then, would soon begin to doze. As soon as that was noticed, a general hum would be heard. From the talk of a whole three hundred boys, this hum soon increased in volume, until it became so loud as to awake the master, who would spring to his feet and give a violent blow on the desk with his cane, and all would quiet in a moment. End quote. You can see why this kind of education was felt a waste of time by many working parents. A child sitting and chatting whilst the drunken schoolmaster slept was a child who could have been sent to the factory, got cotton from under the machines, and earned money instead. Not that the school was a paradise for the children. James continued, quote, The cane was invariably used. Sometimes it was administered on the palm of the hand, but more generally upon any part of the body right and left. At times for more serious offences, there was a kind of military or naval punishment used. Not with the cat, but with the birch. The boy was made to strip, or at least lower his braces, and let trousers down, and received his dose in the lower part of the back, or, as it was regularly termed, his backside, and the doctor was summoned to witness it. Great solemnity was observed on these occasions. Two boys held each hand of the culprit, and he was pulled up tightly, one of those square wooden pillars, which support the hall overhead. The disgrace of having to expose one's person was the principal thing in the punishment. 
People believed in punishments in those days, and it was not an uncommon thing for a woman to ask a master, punish her boy for an offence committed at home. End quote. Isn't it interesting that the mother there is actually asking for the punishment to be done to the child? Also, caning stayed in use in the United Kingdom for an extremely long period, right into the 20th century, only being banned from state schools in 1986 and private schools in 1998. I went to a school that still used the cane. Our headmaster was very proud of the fact that it was one of the few remaining schools that kept it. The math master affectionately named his cane Garfield because it had stickers of Garfield the cat on it. I can recall a light rap across the knuckles during a maths lesson when I didn't understand a question. It certainly made me remember him with his catchphrase of This is not a very difficult question, is it, boy? Thwack. I didn't ever become any good at maths, but he got me through to the end of my school maths exam a year early through unstinting focus. But no one would have dared hit Victoria, meaning that she was more physically inviolate than some more modern British schoolchildren in the 20th century. There are some useful measures of education you can use if you are careful to track it over time. Literacy is one of them. You can make some broad stabs at tracking literacy over time. But you need to define what literacy actually is. Usually you set a given level of skill at reading or writing, then track it over time. By most measures, huge numbers of the Victorian population were illiterate. According to the website Our World in Data, based on OECD and UNESCO data, some 87% of the world's population was illiterate in 1820. That means just 13% of the world's population were literate on the identified measures. Just by learning to read, Victoria was entering an elite and rare group. Actually, Victorian Britain was almost an outlier. The level of literacy was a staggering 53% in 1820, far above France's 38%, although you do have to account for population differences. Admittedly, the definition of literate used in these measures is pretty low, but Victoria was going to be given an education the like of which most of the world could only dream of at the time. It might have appeared limited or sexist to us, but for the early 19th century, it was one most people could never have got or used. No one would get to beat her, put her in rat-infested buildings with leaking sewage, like those children at the Old Benny. Later reformers, like Thomas Arnold, the mid-19th century, shifted the focus even further to the formation of character as the main goal. That meant, for Victoria's mother, the Duchess of Kent, Sir John Conroy, King George IV, then King William IV, 
and the whole nation, the philosophical question to answer was, what was the end purpose educating the future queen and how do you do it? Let's be clear, British royalty has not done that very well throughout history. Lots of royal children ended up damaged or ignorant or just utterly unprepared for the system they were supposed to be running. Victoria had to be educated to be able to answer some of the hard questions if she was going to rule. The Duchess of Kent and Conroy probably felt that they should be the ones supplying the answers in the background, but most people assumed Victoria had to come up with them on her own. She was supposed to be the saviour of the nation, the answer to the awful Georgian kings, to the years of hunger and war. Imagine growing up and realising you were expected to save the nation. Then there was the unspoken part that went with ruling Britain. Although she wasn't given the title for a long time, Victoria was going to be more than a queen. She was going to be an empress. From the moment she sat on the throne, she had to be prepared to rule one of the largest, most powerful empires the world had ever seen, and perhaps ever will. Her domains went from the frozen wastes of the furthest north of Canada to the blazing heat of India, the otherworldliness of Tasmania. Her grandfather had lost the whole of North America. Her uncle, King George IV, was known as an unfit, useless king. This show is about Victoria's education, though. Not about the philosophy or the history of education in the Victorian era. I totally want to do that show, but for today... I've just given you a flavour of it as a background to Victoria as I want you to remember that what people expect from education today is very different from the education expected and required for a queen in the 19th century. She had to be educated for the environment she was in and to fit into the society around her. It was difficult since the society didn't highly value female education, but she was still going to rule it. It was a sexist society in many ways, but it wasn't a stupid one. She had to learn what that meant, and what it didn't mean. She could read Machiavelli, for instance, but she wasn't living in Renaissance Italy. She was living in 19th century Britain, which was a parliamentary democracy, and her powers were constrained. Victoria's first brush with education was under the devoted Louise Lazen, who was chosen as her governess. To quote from Julie Bird's excellent book, Victoria the Queen, an intimate biography, quote, Baroness Lazen, the daughter of a Lutheran pastor from Coburg, was an eccentric, single-minded, clever woman who dedicated her life to ensuring that Victoria would be a forceful, intelligent queen. Victoria, who became a prolific artist, drew affectionate portraits of her, with dark hair, thoughtful eyes, and a pointed nose and chin, looking serious, patient, 
and kind. In later life, Victoria recalled Lazen's appointment, saying, quote, At five years old, Miss Lazen was placed about me, and though she was most kind, she was very firm, and I had a proper respect for her. I was naturally very passionate, but always most contrite afterwards. I was taught from the first to beg my maid's pardon, any naughtiness or rudeness towards her, a feeling I have always retained, and think that everyone should own to their fault, in a way, kind to anyone, be he or she the lowest, if one has been rude to, or injured them by word or deed, especially those below you, people will readily forget an insult or an injury, when others own to their fault, and express sorrow, or regret at what they have done. End quote. It is an interesting part of Victoria's character, a willingness to apologise, but also a curious hint that she expected an apology to solve all her problems. Overall, though, I think it is good that she learned that even royalty can be wrong and should apologise for it. Lazen had been chosen by Uncle Leopold who was picking up a lot of extra bills for the impoverished group, he had worked out that she would be a good counterweight to John Conroy. Ironically, Sir John had accepted the appointment of Lazen to the role, as he and the Duchess of Kent thought she would be easy to control. They made her a key part of the Kensington system. She was the one who had to be with Victoria at all times. She was expected to be the one in control of Victoria's movements, and they in turn expected to control her. Unfortunately for them, Lazen was to be absolutely devoted to Victoria, and Victoria would love her as a mother substitute. It was Lazen who took Victoria and Fedora for carriage rides and on desperately needed social visits, Lazen was always there with Victoria when she was sick. Her loyalty to Victoria was absolute. Conroy had unwittingly created a rival at the heart of his system. In part two of this episode, we will find out just how this all plays out. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to give me some feedback, or just have a chat, or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page, or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat, or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care, and bye for now.